0: Today's program will be special in that I have a conversation with a young pastor I've known for, uh, for several years. In fact, Pastor Shad Hill was a student in one of my classes at Crossroads Bible College. He's now pastoring Deer Creek Community Church up in Noblesville. He'll be my guest for a conversation that I know you'll enjoy. Welcome, Pastor Hill, to this conversation here on Firm Foundation. So glad to have you and looking forward to this uh,
1: this conversation. Uh, thank you for having me, I'm glad to be here.
0: You have worked with people from all walks of life in a multi-ethnic way, let me ask you, what's the key to reaching people for Christ who come from all walks of life?
1: I would say the key is relationship. Um, the The kind of old style of knocking on doors, regurgitating scripture, I think, is is ineffective. People want a relationship now, uh, especially down and out people. You definitely have to meet them where they are. I'm really into letting people come to to faith on their own, not, you know, when Jesus said, feed my sheep, I kind of look at it as by bit. I give them something to chew on. They chew on it for a period of time, and they, you know, they don't come to their own truth, but they come to the truth. And Try to stay away from force feeding and just love them. I mean the I don't try to reinvent the wheel. Uh loving people is at the end of the day what we're we're all about. And I think it, it doesn't the context of where they're living in doesn't really matter to me. Uh there I've seen people who are aesthetically doing very well, uh, in an upper socioeconomic bracket, and I've seen people who are very downtrodden. And really the the recipe for me doesn't change. It's about establishing a relationship feeding them, walking with them, and, uh, you know, showing the love of Christ in in a very plain and simple way. How are we as a church missing the opportunity to
0: reach the current harvest of souls?
1: I think that depending on where you are, that the church has bounced back and forth from two extremes over the last uh, 25 or 30 years, one being... Extreme emotionalism where people gather together on Sunday. Um, There's a euphoric atmosphere that is cultivated and people get really ramped up in their spirit. It's very emotional high. And then the other end of the pendulum being intellectualism, where we are very focused on being theologically correct and doctrine heavy. And I think that there's a balance in between those two things of you know, being in the Spirit and walking in the Spirit and praise and worship and all the things that go along with being uh, the emotional aspects of it, I guess, and then proper doctrine and theology. And I think where those those two things meet are having zeal and wisdom working together. And I think right now there was a break where church culture went either traditional or contemporary. And I think what that did was rob the church of some of its substance because you took the older generation and stuck them in a traditional atmosphere, the younger generation and stuck them in a contemporary atmosphere. And so the wisdom went one way and the zeal went another way. And I think in order to really harvest what's out there, uh, the harvest is, is always plentiful, we do really need a collaboration between those two groups, the wisdom of the elders, the zeal of the youth, and those things coming together, I feel like are really the recipe for uh reaping the kind of harvest that's in the city right now.
0: What do you see God doing in your generation, and how can we work together in a more intergenerational way
1: um in my generation i i, I see God raising up leaders who are equipped to do things that are practical um what you do, what pastor jackson does um Things that aren't just built around Sunday services, but have people immersed in the community and actually, uh, whether it's government, whether it's a media camp, whether it's uh, education, immersing themselves in the actual population of people. Um, Much has been made about the millennials and the millennials walking away from church. I don't see that of my own. I see a generation who's primed and ready uh, for truth. I feel like the millennials have called the church bluff and that there is a certain demographic of men and women in my generation who are ready to meet that and 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 show them that uh, God is true, that Christ is the way. And um, I think there's some humble people that are coming together where it's not about who's out in front, who's leading the parade but who are willing to facilitate collaboration between the generation that that's above us and the generation that is below us. And I really think at the end of the day, that's the only way to reach um, this generation because there's a struggle that went on that the generation that's above me went through that that is edifying to my generation. And, and then the generation coming up, they haven't really endured that same struggle. So it is incumbent for us to extrapolate some of that wisdom that comes only from struggle and, and begin to um, impute it to the generation that's coming and at the same time don't discourage them because they are growing up and being groomed in a different world than than we were and and extrapolate kind of their create, creativity and their zeal. And I see it happening in a... In a you know, a multitude of ways and different, but at the middle of it is always a man who's standing in the hedge, who's willing to, to grab from both sides of the table.
0: Coming up, I used to hear a song entitled uh, Rough Side of the Mountain, uh, coming up the rough side of the mountain. I remember it early on, I made kind of mock the song thinking that, hey, we're blessed, you know, we don't have to go up the rough side of the mountain. But we all find out that there is difficulty and challenge in life. And there are lessons to be learned on the rough side of the mountain but that you can't learn on the smooth side of the mountain. Let me ask you this. Talk about how God uses challenges to strengthen us.
1: Um, I mean, in my personal life, the greatest revelations I've had about God uh, have been through pain and struggle. And that's one of the th- reasons that we need. Uh, the elders and the leadership to come alongside these young people because pain ultimately is is how you know is is how God refines our faith. It's how He consecrates us to a new uh, level in the kingdom, so to speak. I don't always like to use that terminology, but it's how He refines our faith and our walk. And I think there's a generation coming that's uh, some of the, some of the lessons that God would use. In his sovereignty, to consecrate them into a deeper understanding of who he is, they're being groomed by a secular world to avoid, uh, for instance uh, they something bad happens, and they they experience failure for the first time, and they may become sad and This is really the first time in really human history where sadness is now thought of as a treatable disease and um, so instead of enduring the sadness, oftentimes they are groomed to want to escape the sadness and anything that's painful. Uh, really, we've uh, it, it takes some wisdom coming in there because we do we are, you know, at, mental health is part of it because uh, we do have psychotropic medications and mood stabilizers now and and lots of things on the table that are advantageous to us in some cases, but are also just escape routes in some cases. Pain is part of the process. Uh, The analogy I always like to draw is the potter and the clay and the sculpting of the vessel. Uh, We are pretty ebullient about our will and not wanting to be formed and fashioned into what God wants us to be. Uh, All of us, if we're honest, would say that we We press against that will, and the harder we press, the more God squeezes us. And in that squeezing is pain. So pain is really part of the process, and I think, in a sense, we have to arrest the generation that's coming and explain to them that pain is part of the process, it's okay to do hard things, it's okay to... uh, to deal with some anxiety and some sadness and some depression and, 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 and push through it as opposed to looking for an escape route. The apostle
0: Paul plainly said what you have pretty much stated that his, his strength is perfected in our weakness and that God's grace is always sufficient. And that weakness that
1: submitted to God, I believe attracts new levels of grace. There's a lot of different, you know, obviously we're coming off the back end of the prosperity gospel, um, which was precursed by the healing kind of gospel. And and not to disregard all of those things, but there is kind of an a, a I want my best life right now kind of ideology amongst the youth and in the church. And really, um, we have to teach that the design is that, you, you encounter Christ with him on the cross, but really the design is that your flesh ends up on the cross and Christ end, ends up on the throne. And that's a painful process, it, and it's sometimes uh, digested as old-time religion. Uh, but, but we do have to deal with, with sin and the cracking of our outer shell and who we are and our flesh and all those things. And those are painful processes. They are not popular. Um, but they're very edifying, and and, and the, the truth hasn't changed. And uh, the Apostle Paul is very right. I mean, every pastor can identify with uh, God's power being made perfect in their weakness because after you've done this for five minutes, eventually uh, you get tired. You run out of strength, and you you learn a daily dependence upon God. Uh, in the wilderness, when, before Israel went into the promised land and really uh, started to to live on the promises of God and inherit what God had promised them, uh, they had to feed on manna on a day-to-day basis, and they were not allowed to store up that manna for tomorrow. And that's God grooming them to develop a daily dependence upon them before they got to the actual promise. And that's a painful thing, to be close enough to see a promise, and yet you have to go through this daily dependence uh, on God. And, And that's... Pain is—it's it's a good question. I'm, I'm glad you ask it because pain is repeatedly throughout the gospel. It's almost like an algorithm that every time God goes to consecrate you to a greater faith, to a greater blessing, the recipe that he uses to do that is yeah, something dies off, and thats that's very painful. Whether it's a relationship, whether it's a job, whether it's an idea, whatever it is, pain is part of the process.
0: I'm pleased to see that as a young man, you recognize those principles, even though we're going away from it as a society. uh, God's grace is amazing, as the song, another song says, and that God's grace will cause sufficiency that will help to make things change. All the more reason why we should press into God in times of challenge. I mean, though pain is a part of life, and how can we help people process their pain properly?
1: I think it's experiential. You only get to like you said you've known for a long time for me it's been uh it, it's been a lingering more process where uh it it can last a long time. It can it can be very short or very it's it's like labor, you know. It it can last 3 hours or it can last 2 days, but the blessing is not going to be birthed until you you know acquiesce to the pain and learn how to deal with it. So It is something that, um, to get back to kind of collaborating with multi-generationally, it is something that is nice to have someone older stair-stepping you through those processes. For instance, you're you're a man, newlywed, wife's pregnant, you're about to have a baby, you have the baby, you're going to go through some some consecration you're going to go through some pain because your relationship is about to shift and having an elder around you to to help you understand that uh she's different now and that's and and the family unit is different now and how young men especially young men who haven't been fathered interpret that information is oftentimes painful and having someone uh not lording over you, but governing over you, walking with you through that process. Who's been through that is, you know, advantageous to anyone, and reciprocally destructive if it's not present. Because people do all kinds of things to to deal with pain. Uh, some people freeze and they get stuck in that moment for the rest of their life and they stop growing. Some people have knee-jerk reactions and they they latch out and in that in that particular example, they would have an affair or do something like that. Um, so not to reach back a couple of questions, but multi generationally it, it's advantageous to us to have somebody in that context, walking with us, you know, because pain is pain and nobody wants to go through it alone.
0: What and who are your inspirations in life and ministry?
1: My inspirations in life. Uh, my mother has to be the first one, uh just because throughout my life she's been the most steadfast example of faith um outside of circumstances and situations um that I've ever ever seen. we just looking at her life panoramically and seeing her wait on the blessings of god and and walk by faith and behave as if she had already inherited things that she hadn't inherited has always been uh, one of the greatest examples of faith that I've seen face to face. Uh, My wife is a good example. Watching her transition from just being a wife to being a wife and mother and uh, being humble and a woman of grace and eloquence has been a blessing to me and very inspirational. And Right now, I would say uh, the biggest influence I have is probably the kids uh, at the school that I work at who are what we would term struggling students or disenfranchised and their ability to still uh, have a zeal for life and be creative and and not give up and show up on a day-to-day basis and keep kind of grinding it out has been very uh, inspirational to me. Um, So I draw inspiration from, from all those things and, of course, the spirit that God has given me uh, has is is constantly kind of thrusting me into new environments that I find inspirational um Rob Staley is is somebody who I've met in the last 6 months who started a school that kind of catches children who are following are falling through the cracks of uh, secular public education um what you do, what Pastor Jackson does, what uh, Pastor Harrison's doing, all those things. I find a great deal of inspiration in ministry that is not the most glamorous type of ministry, but really where the rubber meets the road uh, ministry, uh, pastors and and men of God who are participating in that kind of uh, warfare, really, because that ultimately, in my experience, has been what changes lives and seeing uh, pastors walk with people, pour into people over a period of time and see lives really changed and affected like that is very inspirational to me. Whereas maybe 10 years ago I had more of a uh, grandiose idea of what it meant to be uh, a minister or a pastor or a man of God and now I see that in a smaller context with a greater effect. Uh, pouring into people on an individual basis. So I draw inspiration from a myriad of places, um, but that's those are definitely some some key figures that I draw inspiration from.
0: You have experience in working in both urban and suburban ministries. I see God's grace on your life in this regard and ministering to people uh, from all walks of life in a multi-ethnic type of way. What unique challenges do we face in both urban and suburban ministry?
1: Let me speak to suburban first, because that's, for the last three years, been my challenge. Um, So much of ministry, I think, is supply and demand, and the demand has to be cultivated. And in suburban ministry, one of the hurdles has been people who are okay. Um, I reference it sometimes as church face people who are nicely put together, two-car garage, nice house, uh, married with children sometimes, and aesthetically everything on the exterior looks very good. And then maintaining a gospel that says we're all sinners saved by grace is, in my experience, a harder thing to accept for people who are not in need of food, uh, shelter, um, who who go to, who send their children to schools that are good schools, um, who live in, you know, nice neighborhoods. It's been a challenge to overcome church face. It, I mean, is really the best way that I put it and dig down deep into the fact that we're all sinners. We're all, you know, in need of grace. And the only way to get people to respond to that is to preach the gospel and Cultivate within them a need for a savior. A lot of folks that are okay in a secular world system don't feel like they need a savior, and it's easy to assimilate into some of our churches nowadays, and and, and never have to to be called to account of that. Um, there there are churches nowadays where if you write a check, that's your key to the door to get into the leadership, and you can you can really climb the ladder having never repented or or experience really the grace of God. You, you may have experienced prosperity and you may ex- have experienced success in a capitalist economic infrastructure, but you've had no heart change. So some of the challenges in suburbia are kind of overcoming that initial struggle of I'm okay. And then the second backside of that is really the courage that it takes in an environment like that to, to be vocal about I'm not okay and I need a savior. And uh, I press really hard in my church that you can get saved in your seat, but really uh, sit down Christianity is not something I'm trying to build at my church. The courage to walk in front of men and women and make a general confession that I am sinful and in need of the grace of God to be saved and and desperate for his love and his affection, and his power uh, is something that I, I press very hard to do in a suburban atmosphere. In urban atmospheres, I feel like that hurdle is more easily overcome because there's there's more need, uh, there's financial need, there's. Uh, you know, whether it's healthcare, whether it's housing, whether it's food, there's there's a lot of times there's there's already a cultivated need uh, inside of folks sometimes, and it's it's a redirecting of where to get those resources, and it just seems easier to preach the gospel. There's a better response or a quicker response in those areas. The the, the biggest challenge I think in urban culture right now is collaboration amongst leadership. Um, We kind of did our own thing, I think, for for a few years, and there were churches on every street corner, and bullets started flying in between the churches, and uh, arguing over dunking and sprinkling and and, uh, elementary doctrine things kind of separated us all. And I think whether it's out of necessity or whether it's just a, a move of the Spirit... Pastors, I think, are starting to get that there's power in collaborating, and uh, your gift and my gift together are better than your gift and my gift separate and I think the generation that's coming up in the inner city because it's been devastated by fatherlessness, it's been devastated by underfunded education systems um, has grown up, and they've seen that that divide in in pastoral leadership in the house. And I think there's starting to be a different image fed them of leadership coming together, edifying one another, being on the same team. And that's a different picture than the one that's been presented, I think, for the last uh, 20 or 30 years. And I think that's a big hurdle that uh, the city of Indianapolis in particular is starting to to overcome.
0: I've been watching with great interest. Uh, Our mayor, Hawkset, has put forth a plan to uh, address behavioral health issues such as mental health in the process of a criminal justice system and, and policing. We know that today that police are often called uh, to, to scenes that no crime is happening, but that someone there is mentally ill or mentally distressed. And so police now are becoming the first responders in mental health situations. In fact, Marion County Jail is the the largest mental health institution in the whole state, and of course, jails don't do mental health, right? So people go to jail with mental issues, get out of jail, and their behavior repeats for a lack of treatment. Um, I'm pleased to s- to say that I work with three men of God, and they commissioned me and gave me guidance. In fact, and we produced a video series in- entitled "Healthy Mind, Healthy City." In fact, the website there's on the screen, "Healthy Mind." healthycity.org. And this was last fall and we explored in some detail, mental health issues that affect the community and African-Americans in particular. Let me ask you, how can we advise and teach believers to be more compassionate and more effective when helping people with all types
1: of situations, including mental illness? I think it's deeper than that. I think people need to be educated about mental health, of I spent 10 years inside of uh, a psych hospital working with conduct disorder teenagers, chemically dependent adults. And we have to be educated and know um, what it is that we're looking for. And and it's not just pastors. This is police officers. This is teachers. Uh, Know what the precipitating causes to some of the acting out behavior are so you don't automatically assume uh certain things that cause you to react a certain way. Uh the mental health aspect of ministry is, is going to take education. It's something that we're dealing with that the book isn't written on yet. Um understanding mental health disorders, understanding that they're real, understanding uh you know, understanding how the secular world is dealing with it is I think part of the equation that We do have now an over-medicated generation of children. So I think there's two extremes. There's the person who's in need of mental health services that in most urban environments are uh, either non-existent or poor, um, underfunded systems. And then the other side of the coin is there's a mental health process out there uh, that's backed by pharmaceutical companies where when young children have even sometimes normal behavior issues the answer uh, is to take them and whether it's suggested by a school or or suggested by a therapist is to medicate them and I think over a period of time we don't really know what the byproduct of that is, but in some cases I think it's more damaging than it is helpful i've I've seen situations where a kid was five or six years old, and angry about legitimate things that he should be angry. My dad's gone. My mom's struggling. I'm anxious. It's hard for me to sit still in a classroom. That really, the answer to that is really a, a man of God, a woman of God, a teacher to come alongside that child and fill in that gap, not a pill. So that's one side that I think we have to start having a dialogue about because there are spaces where if you walk into a certain place and you have insurance, especially Medicaid or something like that, you're going to get diagnosed with something, and you're going to get prescribed a something because it's in pharmaceuticals companies' best interest to, to do that. And pharmaceutical companies call on doctors. They make sales calls. There's incentives. There's all kind of stuff. The other side of the coin is when there are relevant and real mental health issues – education is key and whether that means somebody walked into your church who had schizoaffective disorder schizophrenic uh, post-traumatic stress disorder major depression bipolar all of those things are uh, I readily identifiable by somebody who's been educated um, a a discerning eye uh, is something that that comes through wisdom and through teaching and through knowledge and these mental health issues are so new that there's a knowledge deficit, especially in the church, about what they are. And we see the ramifications in uh, police activity inside of education where we're still catching up to how to deal with them, and and training needs to happen, education needs to happen, and, and wisdom and discernment and prayer, of course, uh, need to lubricate that process. But it's definitely something that... Uh, the church in this century is going to have to grapple with. Thank you,
0: Pastor Hill. My final question is, you want to share anything else with our audience, anything on your heart you want to share with us right now?
1: I'd like to share that I, I think there's a, a movement right now who where every every generation looks back at the, the next generation coming and kind of shakes their head. I've done it, most people have done it, where they dress different, they uh, engage in social activity different, and I think that this generation is doing a little bit of that themselves, and I would just encourage those who are uh, generation X, so to speak, and above to not be discouraged with this generation that's coming. Uh, I always tell people uh go back and look at your old pictures of you as a teenager and 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 you'll you know you'll have some things to say about yourself too, but I really do think that this generation, these millennials. Um, are the generation that God is priming for a supernatural move of God. I see them as creative. I see them as uh, fed up with things as they are in a very appropriate way. Um, I see them as uh, a very musical generation. And even though that means right now they're, they may be listening to what I call trap music, and I would agree that it's a trap, um, but, but I see them as just being... Groomed in a way and primed in a way for a supernatural move of God So I would say don't be discouraged with the generation that's coming. Uh, they're going to be Um I think movers and shakers. I see God moving in that way right now
0: Thank you pastor hill. It's been a really good conversation. I trust our listeners and, and viewers have been informed and inspired